I'm going to pray uh, for us this morning, and I want to pray by using a prayer that Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians. So let's come to God's word and pray now. Paul writes, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that that would be true for us today, that after looking at this passage together, we would love you more deeply than we do now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, but if you weren't here last week, I'm just going to recap from last week because today really is building on what we were looking at last week. If you remember, we looked at the passage at the beginning of chapter 4 and the kind of um, contrast that Paul gave us between the promise and the law. Do you remember? The promise first given to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, And this promise flows all the way through the scriptures and is all about how we can have a relationship with God. And then the law of God that was first given to God's people through Moses in Exodus chapter 20, a good law, but a law that becomes a problem for you and I because we can't keep it. A perfect God, an imperfect you and me, and we can't bridge the gap. And so the law that was good leads to broken relationship. And we kind of contrasted these two things, didn't we? Promise and law. And we ended last week by thinking about what it meant to know God personally. And one of the really big things about knowing God personally is to be called a child of God. And if you remember, we looked at these three really great statements, which I hope warmed our heart. Um, Those of us who follow and know the Lord Jesus, I asked us that question, do you know that God loves you? Have you experienced the rescue that he wants us all to experience And perhaps most importantly of all, do you know that you belong, not just to an earthly family, but to God's heavenly family? They're great statements of what it means to become a Christian. And I guess the big thing that Paul builds on now into this week is he says one of the really big things he wants us to know, if you're a child of God, if you belong to him, is that this is meant to mean that you're free. Freedom is the really big theme that comes at the end of chapter 4, And it's because of freedom that the the, the commands and the challenges of chapter 5 next week are made possible. Paul argues he wants God's people to know that they're free. And you see how the reading ended, didn't you? Beginning of chapter 5, where Paul declares this great statement, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You think about it, this is a really, really important subject in our world, isn't it? Because our world is full of slavery. There's physical slavery, there's spiritual slavery, and there's slavery that we probably don't even see as slavery, but things that bind us, things that control us, things that lead us away from God. And Paul wants to make it really clear to us today that the Christian life is a life of freedom. And we'll come to look at what that looks like. But it's because Paul is so passionate about freedom. Do you see in our passage, chapter 4, verse 12, he uses really strong language. He says to the Galatian church, I plead with you. And then in chapter 4, verse 20, a little later on, 
he said, I am perplexed by you. Now, why would Paul be pleading with this church? Why would he be puzzled? I'm perplexed by you. The way that you're thinking, the way that you're acting. What's all that about? Well, Paul's longing is not that we just believe the gospel or that we just feel the gospel, even though both are important, believing it and feeling it. Paul's real longing is that you and I are changed by the gospel. That's what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just to know stuff, not even just to feel stuff, but to be changed by the gospel. Do you notice the very funny language of verse 19, where Paul, a man, is talking about the pains of childbirth? What does he say? Uh, 40, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Paul rather strangely says, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's a rather bizarre phrase, isn't it? A man talking about the pains of childbirth. You know, it'd be like a woman saying, how do you know? But think about a woman who is in labor. The moment that labor begins, all the woman wants to do, all the mother wants, is for the child to arrive safely, to be delivered, to be out, so that the pain can cease. And Paul is taking this expression, there's only true for women, he's saying, that is in sense how I feel for you, Because I long for you to be out, rather like a baby who is delivered. I long for you to be alive. I long for you to be free. So two of my favorite verses in the Bible speak of this. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 13, uh, verse 18, sorry. You and I are being conformed into the image of God's son. These are verses that are not just talking about what I believe or what I feel, but verses talking about the transformation that can take place in our hearts once we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's have a look at a few things that this freedom could mean in our lives. We looked at the big one last week. To become a child of God, to know God personally, is first and foremost about being free from the judgment our sin deserves. Remember last week, I gave that little analogy of here I am and I can look left to her and look right to him and I can think, well, I'm all right. I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. But the challenge was this, wasn't it? Look up and you see a perfect holy God. It doesn't matter how good she is, how good he is, or how good I think I am. Compared to a holy, perfect God, I'm totally broken. And God in his love judges all that is not right. Which actually means that it's loving for God to judge us for all the wrong that we do. But that creates a massive problem for every person. But didn't we see last week, one of the greatest truths of being a Christian believer is that you and I can be freed from the judgment that our sin deserves. That is an astonishing truth. We can also, and we looked at this last week, be freed from having to be good enough. How many of us strive in our life to want to please God? It's a good thing to want to do, but we can never do, we can never live up to God's standard. And ironically, we can never even live up to our own standards. But the gospel frees you from having to be good enough. Frees you from having to worry, am I good enough for God? Have I mucked up too much? The gospel says you're free. That is an astonishing truth too. How about this one? How many of you suffer from that unhealthy expectation from other people? Either expectation they place on you or you place on yourself. 
constantly feeling you have to keep up appearances. You know how it goes. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Really? It's just a way of deflecting attention, isn't it? But if someone said, how are you actually doing? Do you feel able to be vulnerable and go, you know what? I'm actually struggling. I'm actually really hurting. We're not very good at it. And yet church should be a place where we're free to be ourselves, free to struggle. And one of the things the gospel does is it frees us from that expectation of other people that I have to be something in front of people. I have to be sorted. I have to know all the answers. I have to be okay. The gospel says to me, you can be broken and that's still okay. You can struggle and that's okay too. But these are freedoms that you can only experience if you know Jesus Christ, because he is the one who frees us from these things. And here's the last one, which I guess we'll focus on primarily today. Becoming a child of God, that freedom that we can know in Christ, is about being freed from slavery to false gods. And Simon helps us understand this in the introduction. Not just slavery from a kind of first century gods, little wooden or stone objects that I might keep in my house. Not even slavery from false religions and other gods, but slavery from anything that, like we saw in that children's talk, replaces God as number one in our life. So here's a little question for you, and you can just reflect on this in your own heart, and I'll be quiet for a minute as you do this. Two little questions. Firstly, do you believe the gospel? And secondly, is it changing you? Is the good news about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you changing you? Just have a think about that for a second. I meet a lot of people who say that they believe the gospel, and I believe they do. But when you really push, they say, you know what, it's not really changing anything in my life. I've experienced that in my own life. And it's really hard. I believe the gospel, but it's not really changing me. But Paul is saying in this passage, he wants the gospel to change us. He wants the gospel to transform us. So it's not just a set of beliefs that I have, or even a set of feelings that lead me to emotionally respond, but is actually changing me. Here's another question for you. Do you feel spiritually alive? And don't think by that I'm saying, are you busy as a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm serving on this team and that team, and I run a home group and I serve coffee. I'm spiritually alive. Spiritually alive is not about what I do. Being spiritually alive is about knowing God. It's about recognizing what he has done for me and what he's doing in my life. And the most spiritually alive people are the people who are sensitive to God's spirit, transforming them day by day, overcoming those battles in our lives that are difficult. Now, why is this so important? Idolatry, anything which takes the place from God as being number one in our life, is a really, really, really serious problem. And that is why this kind of paradigm of idolatry becomes one of the biggest themes that you'll see all the way through the Bible. It's what we saw in that little verse which the children and we together were saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Why does God declare that? It's not because he's an arrogant bully, I'm first. It's because he knows that when he's first, that's actually what's best for you and what's best for me. The gospel is all about freedom. And if the gospel is not changing us and making us more like Christ day by day, then there's a very strong chance that there's something or someone in our life who at this moment is actually more important to us than God. And that person is effectively enslaving us, stopping us from growing to love Christ more and more. Here's a bit of homework for you. You can do this now. If you 
have one of these handouts that was on most of the seats when you came in. This uh, is a little grid which was written in a book by a man called Tim Keller, a brilliant book called Counterfeit Gods. If I could only read five books in my life, this is one of the books I would read, along with some stuff by Martin Luther and John Stott and Jim Packer. This is a brilliant book, but it's a seriously, seriously challenging book. And towards the end of the book, he puts this little grid in. What I'd love you to do, just take a moment while I pause and read through it and see if you can identify for yourself what might be your idol. And I don't do this to shame you and make you feel rubbish because as I looked through this list this morning, I thought I could tick up virtually every single one. It's not to shame you, it's more to put on your heart what it is that you could perhaps pray for that God could be at work in. Just spend a few moments having a look at that. There's all sorts in there. I'm not expecting us to sort of be able to read through all of that and take it all in now. It might be a great thing for you to take away. That's why I wanted to do it as a handout. But perhaps this is something you could take away with you and pray about. These things aren't here to shame us, to make us feel rubbish. Because at different times in our life, we'll probably fall short in all of these areas. But take one of these things and whatever it is that perhaps for you at the moment might be the one thing that's stopping God being number one in your life. And there'll be all sorts of things. Take that one thing. Maybe pray about it this week. Pray about it with your friends. Pray about it in your homes. Pray about it in your home groups. Because as you do that, what you're saying to God is, I want to be free from the controlling influence of this thing, however good a thing it is. And when God is put back at number one in my life, these good things I'll enjoy even more. That's the challenge that he puts to us. I'll leave that with you to continue to pray about. That's a a pretty long introduction, but I wanted us to grasp that because that tees up the passage. But we've seen really in the first 20 verses that the great tragedy that Paul says, I plea with you, I am perplexed by you, is because of this. He sees free people returning to slavery. In the context in Galatia, it was Jews who'd become Christians and then other people coming along and saying to these Jewish Christians, you've got to kind of resort back to your Jewish ways of life for you to be a real Christian. There's certain things you've got to do for God to be pleased with you. And Paul goes, no, the gospel frees you from what you have to do. You can be culturally Jewish, but you're free in your faith. That was the context. But have a look down, because the second thing Paul teaches us really is the illustration. And this is where it got kind of wordy in the reading. It was difficult to understand. But I'm going to try and explain it with a very simple diagram behind me. The illustration he gives, and we touched on this last week, is the contrast between slavery and sonship. Okay. So here's the contrast that Paul is unpacking. You can see it there in verse 22. You've got two women, Hagar and Sarah. Who were they? Remember Abraham? Abraham had a wife called Sarah. He also had a slave girl called Hagar. God had made a promise to Abraham, you will be the father of a great nation. And Abraham's going, what? I am old. My wife Sarah is barren and old. There's no way that we can have children. So how is God's promise ever going to be fulfilled? So what do they do? They disbelieve the promise of God. They go their own way. And in their own strength, they seek to build this family that God had promised them. So Abraham sleeps with his slave woman, Hagar, and they give birth to a son, Ishmael. But the point is, this was human effort. When you see in the scriptures the word flesh, it's a word that means human effort. In their own strength, they were trying to bring about the promises of God. We can do what God hasn't clearly done for us. He made us a promise, but maybe we need to control it. They gave birth to Ishmael. But God said, 
that Ishmael remained a slave because he was the son of a slave woman. And the promises of God were never going to be fulfilled through this slave line. Ishmael was not going to have a family that was going to be the people who would inherit the land. But later, what does God do? He miraculously enables Sarah, despite her barrenness, to give birth to a son, Isaac. And this was all because of the gracious promise of God. And it's through Isaac's line that God was going to build this great nation. So the, the contrast of slavery and sonship becomes a contrast of slavery and freedom. Will I trust in the promises of God or will it all be about my own human effort? Um, I uh, really want to jump out of an aeroplane. I know that sounds crazy. Maybe I am crazy, but I've always wanted to do it, uh, preferably attached to someone who knows what they're doing and preferably attached to a parachute. That'd be reasonable. Now, I really want to jump out of an aeroplane. I don't know why, but it's something I've always wanted to do. And in three ways, I'm free to do that. Okay, let me explain. I have what's called freedom of opportunity. I have a day off on a Monday, and if I save some money, I could afford to jump out of an aeroplane. So I have freedom of opportunity to do it. I also got freedom of ability. I've got a strong, healthy heart. The doctors said that I would be fit enough to jump out of a plane. Freedom of opportunity, Monday day off. Freedom of ability, healthy. And I've also got freedom of desire. I'm mad enough to want to do it. Opportunity, ability, and desire. Now you imagine I go up in the plane, and I jump out of the plane, and then suddenly my parachute doesn't open. And if in that moment I do a conference call through to Long Crendon, and you ask me the question, Mark, are you free? In three senses, I'm free, aren't I? I'm free in terms of opportunity. It's Monday, it's my day off, I'm jumping out of the sky. I'm freedom in terms of my ability. While I'm falling, I'm still alive. I'm freedom in terms of desire. I want to do it. But in a fourth and more important sense, am I actually free? Because the freedom that I'm wanting to enjoy is actually the very thing that's going to kill me. Do you see in our passage, chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says, what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. It's a verse of judgment. It's a verse saying that anyone born of Ishmael is not going to be ultimately free. They feel free. It's like falling out of an airplane. I've got opportunity, ability, and desire. But in a true sense, am I free? My freedom's going to kill me. My heart breaks when I look at our world, and I'll tell you why. Because so, so many people are really, really, really sincere about their beliefs, but are sincerely wrong. You take all the great religions of the world, and I say this with great respect, because I have friends who are Muslims, friends who are Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, fully paid up, cashed in Roman Catholics. You can be really, really, really sincere in your faith. But sincerity never saved anyone. And none of those religions have a saviour. All of them are about what do I do for God to be pleased with me so I can be accepted. And you can be really, really sincere in your life, but be sincerely wrong. You take religion out of it. Many, many, many people, and loads of my friends, are sincere about the need to be good. But their syndrome is what we looked at last week. 
I'm good and I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. I'm good. But there's none of this looking up and recognizing that before a holy God, I'm not good at all. Being good is a good thing to do. Being sincere about being good is a really good thing to do. But sincerely being good can never save. Because you and I need a saviour. But Paul teaches in this passage that true freedom comes not through just having opportunity or ability or desire. True freedom comes through knowing him. Because when I know him, anything and everything else can be taken away, but I'll never ever lose him. You could lock me up for being preaching the gospel faithfully. But I'd still be free in prison. Because you can't take Jesus Christ away from a person. It's exactly what Paul argues when he writes the letter to the Philippians. He's in prison, but he's the freest man alive because he knows Jesus Christ. And that is the freedom that Paul wants us to know. So if you are a believer, and most people here know and trust the Lord Jesus, I want to ask you, don't envy the false freedom of the world. When the world says, oh, don't bother with religion, don't bother with God, be free. Because the world says you're free when you do what you want. God says you're free when you do what I want. Because he knows everything, because he loves us so perfectly, we only actually experience true freedom when we know him. And when we live life his way. Doing life my way may feel like I'm free, but it's the kind of freedom like when I'm falling out of a plane. Opportunity, ability, desire. But in a true sense, I'm not free at all. And the very thing that I'm pursuing in my freedom will end up being the thing that enslaves me and ultimately kills me. But what does Jesus himself say in John chapter 8? Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We live in a world that is full of slavery. We're enslaved to our own desires. We're enslaved to the desires of the world. But God wants us to know we can be free from all of that. But we'll only find true freedom when we seek to find it in God alone. Not in anything that God has created, however good that thing is. But you know... When you say that to the world, the world will say to you, you're utterly nuts. Look at the passage, verse 29 of chapter 4. You could easily face persecution or opposition when you live with this mindset. Why? At that time, verse 29, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. If you live with Jesus Christ as your Lord in your family, in your workplace through suffering the world will say what are you doing follow me because i'm truly free but they're free in the sense of me falling out of an airplane without a parachute on they're not truly free but the gospel says you can be truly free if you know jesus christ as your lord and savior so finally and this isn't really something i'm going to speak about it's more something for us to dwell on The third thing this passage does is gives us all a choice. It's not just a choice, will I have eggs for breakfast or cereal? It's a serious choice. It's a life-changing choice. Will I stand firm in the freedom that Christ has won for me? Or will I give in and be a slave? 
Notice how our reading ended and notice how the reading will begin again next week, as well as he takes us into chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Often in the Christian life, you have an objective truth and then you have the lived experience. That's just normal. So the objective truth is I have been set free by the cross of Christ. He's forgiven me for my sin. I've become a child of God. I'm loved. I've been rescued. I belong. All of last week's stuff. But if I stand on that objective truth, I still have lived experience. And every time I look back at that objective truth, it will help me to be anchored in it. But there'll be many times in my life where I'll take my eyes off that truth and I'll look to be anchored somewhere else. And that is where this little page becomes really useful because something or someone else in my life will be vying for my attention. Let me be God in your life. Then you'll be really free. And where Paul here says stand firm, he's talking about stand firm on that objective truth that you know is true. And then to enjoy that lived experience, keep standing on that truth. Never move from it. That's why in this church we never ever move away from the gospel. Because the second we move away from the gospel, we'll become enslaved again to our own desires, to the desires of this world. But Jesus Christ, friends, wants you to be free. I want to read just a couple of sentences as I close from the same book I read from last week, The Forgotten Father. Talking about the fatherhood of God, talking about what it means to be a child of God. I'll close with this and then... Just take a moment to reflect quietly in your own hearts. The band will come up and play for us and then we will stand to sing before Simon comes again. Let me read to you from this little book. Many Christians have stopped short. Their obedience to Christ would urge them on, but their bondage to the principalities and powers of their middle class way of life holds them and makes them afraid. Although they feel the call of God urging them forward in obedience to some of the things we've mentioned, they hold back. The critical question that the whole renewal faces is whether renewed people, whether Christians, will be led only as far as their own felt needs take them, or whether they will go on in obedience to the Father who wants to make them a sign to the world of his transforming and revolutionary power in Christ. I'll just read that last sentence again to let you take it in. The critical question that the whole world faces is whether renewed people, Christians, will be led only as far as their felt needs take them or whether they will go on in obedience to the Father who wants to make them a sign to the world of his transforming and revolutionary power in Christ our vision as a church is to see lives changed by Christ and this verse on the screen behind me is how we see that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery